will, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll continue our look in this book. Again, dealing with the idea of the glory of God today in this story. Before we do that, let's go to him in prayer. Ask for his help with it, that we might see Jesus in it. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we know that this is a story about the redemption of your people that you have set aside from the foundations of the earth. You sent your son Jesus to save his people from their sins. And so this story is about him. It's not about us. And so may we lift Jesus up as we come to this story, that we would see our own sin, our need for him, and that we would cling closer to him as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this story this week, I thought of the story of Dumbo. You guys know the dum- Dumbo with the big ears and the uh, flying elephant, right? You know, the uh, for some reason, the goings-ons in this story made me think of him. It'll make sense. So tr- trust me. He was, uh, uh, I know I'll make some weird connections. It's weird. Uh, you know, Dumbo's a circus elephant. His mom had him, and he had big ears, and all the big elephants made fun of him, and the mom went crazy and tore the circus down, so they got separated. Well... He doesn't know he can fly at the beginning. He meets up with a little mouse, and uh, then he has this uh, kind of interesting evening of seeing pink elephants. And he wakes up in the morning, and he's in a tree. Him and his mouse friend are in a tree. And he has no idea how he got up there, Dumbo. Well, a group of crows convince him that he flew up there. I guess they must have saw him. I don't know. But he didn't believe it. And so they gave him a magic feather, which just happened to be the tail feather of one of the crows. Nothing really magical about it. But, as you'd guess, they convinced him he could fly. And in his final circus act, they had him jumping off a building that was uh, somehow hundreds of feet tall inside a circus tent. And he plans to fly, but on his way down, he loses his feather, and he thinks he can't fly, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, he flies anyway, and I've told you the whole movie. Uh, it's still good. You should watch it. Um, the point of the whole thing was it wasn't the feather at all. It was Dumbo that could fly, this big elephant that can fly. Well, there's a similar thing happening in this text today, except it's the people of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant the very footstool of God, the symbol of his presence among the people, this ark that contains the staff of Moses, very important to the people of Israel, to the understanding of how they worship, to their sacrifices, to everything that they do. It's normally housed in the holy place in the temple, but on this occasion the people But on some occasions, let me say, the people were instructed to move it, to take it places. And in this passage today, there is no such instruction. But the people go and get it anyway, because they're going to be hoping for some sort of military victory by bringing the ark, hoping that they can somehow, it can make them win. Just like Dumbo's feather made him fly. I think many times we use the Lord... In the same way, as our magic feather, as it were. And we glory in other things. We see those things 
is our best path to success, or whatever it is. For Dumbo, it was a feather. For Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. For us, I think it takes lots of different forms, and we'll look at some of that today. And so, In our passage today, I want to consider three main ideas. When we glory in a thing instead of our God, and when the Lord removes that glory, and then lastly, when glory comes back. And so with that, let's look at the text together. We'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 4, second part of verse 1, all the way through the end of the chapter. And so let's stand together as we read from God's Word. <clears throat> and as I'm reading, please pay, pay close attention to this idea and the theme of glory as we go through here. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line, drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the, uh, ark of the Lord had come into camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of, the, of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of the, for the, ark of the Lord. And when the man came into the city, he told the news. All the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were, were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, 
Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her, her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because the father-in-law and her, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has been departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Amen. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So kind of a somber story today. For the next few chapters, we're actually going to leave the young man Samuel behind. The last thing we're going to hear about him is in verse 4. Or chapter 4, verse 1a there, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Remember, that was a good thing last week. And now we're hearing about what's going on with the rest of Israel. Um, we're going to be learning about uh, what's going on with the people of Israel, particularly, I think, as it pertains to the Ark of God for the next several chapters, how it was captured, how it kind of goes on this tour of uh, the Philistine cities, and how it ended up back in Israel eventually. And a considerable amount of time is actually going to pass during this time, so we can't forget the main idea of the book. And that's that the Lord doesn't look at the thing at things the way that the world looks at them. And so I think we do well to take note of that. And this passage is a good example of that central theme. The Lord saw fit to have the ark taken into a pagan nation in order to teach his people that he won't share glory with anything or anyone. And again, just like the book of Judges, we see this continued ebb and flow, good and bad, going back and forth. And with these times that we're reading about going to be some of the worst of those times. And I think it shows the utter depravity, even among the leaders of Israel that we're seeing here, and the Lord dealing with that. And another recurring thing to talk about briefly, I think, is the people group called the Philistines. We're going to read a lot about them in this book. Philistines were people that inhabited this area south of Israel, right up against the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they're thought to even origi to originate from like the Aegean Islands there in the Mediterranean Sea. Not a lot's known about them, actually. Uh, the first that we hear about them is in Genesis 22 with the man Abimelech. And he was the Philistine king, if you remember that story. And they were among the Canaanite nations that were to be vanquished by Israel. Even though they were never mentioned among those nations. They were among those nations to be vanquished by Israel when Israel came in and inherited the promised land. But if you remember your Old Testament, that didn't work out very well. Israel didn't do what God told them to do. And so now these nations are rising up in power against Israel. Israel is going to be dealing with these enemies now for some time. And they'll be at the center of this book, this nation called the Philistines. They'll kind of be a thorn in the side of Israel. And this is our first interaction with them. And here we see this powerful 
raiding army, a real threat to the nation of Israel. And that brings us to our first point, when we can glory in the thing instead of in the Lord. So again, this is kind of an interlude. We won't hear from Samuel again until chapter 7. The nation of the Philistines is attempting to spread northward. Israel is going to go out and meet them in battle, as you would expect them to do. And what happens? Well, they lose 4,000 men. That's a lot of people to die there. And it confused them. Note that the elders of Israel said, verse 3, and the troops came back to camp. The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why did we lose? Why did the Lord defeat us? It's an interesting way to frame the question. So consider what's going on here a little bit. Let's think about this. We know that the Lord is the one who controls all things, right? We know that, that nothing happens outside of what he first ordains to happen. And yes, in that sense, sure, the Lord did defeat them in that it was the Lord's decision that the people of Israel should lose. But let's consider this in their next idea. What is their plans as a result of the Lord has defeated us. What are their plans that they should do? Why has the Lord defeated us? Well, let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here to Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So what are they attempting to do? Understand this progression, what's going on here. The Lord defeated us, and so let's bring this thing that represents the very presence of the Lord so that we will be saved. The word it there in verse 4, or no, in verse 3, that it may come among us and save us can also be translated as he in the Hebrew, interchangeable. So understand that Israel thought that they were essentially bringing the Lord into battle with them. They were bringing his representation into battle with them, that the ark represented his presence, and so that somehow they were coercing then the Lord to fight for them. If the Lord defeated them in their first battle, then now his hands would kind of be tied, wouldn't they? Because here he is in the midst of battle. And now he had to side with his people, right? He's here now. He has to side with his people. Now that the Lord, ha- he, now that the Lord is here, he has to do what we want him to do. We're bringing him to battle with us. Even the corrupt priests came along. Remember the prophecies against these priests? They knew the prophecies against them. If I if they were the prophecies against me, I wouldn't have left my house. But they go to the midst of battle, alongside the ark. So you have this procession going through the camp, with the ark being carried along, the priests with it. With them is this sense of coming victory, because now we have the very Lord of hosts 
among us, the Lord of the army. The camp goes crazy when the ark comes in because the Lord is here. This time he can't defeat us. He is here with us. And even though fear initially strikes the Philistines, you kind of get this idea. Philistines are still convinced that um, that Israel's a polytheistic religion, I think, because they keep talking about the gods and the gods that defeated Egypt, and we're afraid of these gods. They don't really even understand Israel's religion, but they're afraid of it. But they become emboldened at the thought that they were going to have to be slaves. And they kind of have this pep talk going on in their own camp. And what happens? They rout Israel. They kill 30,000 of Israel. They kill their priests. They take the ark. Maybe Israel forgot. Maybe Hophni and Phinehas forgot that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And the Lord had a debt to collect from those brothers there that day. And he did just that. And it cost Israel 30,000 of their men. So what does this have to do with us? Or as I hear a very wise man say every Wednesday morning, what does all that mean? It's a good question to ask when we come to the scriptures. What does all that mean? What does it have to do with us? I think we could really get trapped into believing that this is some kind of history lesson. Because the important thing for us to see here is that the Lord is no magic feather. He will not be tricked, convinced, or coerced into doing something. What does he do? Well, we've been teaching the kids this the last few weeks. What does the Lord do? All of his holy will. He does things that he will do, because he does whatever pleases him. His holy will, in this case, was to do what? Exact judgment on Hophni and Phinehas. And he did just that. Bringing the sacred artifact into battle did nothing to sway the Lord's decision. And so how do we do this? Let's think about this for a moment. Because I think the way that we do this has very subtly seeped its way into our theology as a church. Not as Redeemer community necessarily, but as a church in this country. And now as this is a largely a part of the way that we think of God. And the average Christian thinks about God in the way that God works. And you hear things like this. Well, God will bless you if you just let him. Or just consider Tuesday night. God wants to bring America back. We just have to elect the right people. As if the right people, whoever that is, is the little trinket that we're going to bring to battle, our magic feather, so that God will love us again and love this country again. God will do blank if we just do this. As if our doing something can somehow coerce God into doing something for us. What is the magic feather we're basically holding on to here? It's our own autonomy. It's the idea that we're somehow in charge. Is it any different than Israel's sin here? Not really. They attempted to coerce God with this thing called the ark, and the ark is a very holy thing. 
And it's a thing that it, that God instructed Israel to, to, to have in the holy place. It's a very good thing. But at the end of the day, it's just gold and wood. It's a thing. It is not God. They attempted to coerce him with that. But he is not the thing. He is the creator. God is sovereign. He rules and he reigns over his creation. And he does as he pleases. However, he loves his children in the midst of that. And so I want us to balance what we just said. Here's God who says, he strikes down Hophni and Phinehas. He strikes down 30,000 soldiers. How do we balance that with this idea that he loves us? And so that's what we're going to bring us to the next point. When God removes the glory. And so after the battle, you have this one man who slips away. He runs back to Shiloh. And he was in pretty rough shape. It says that he had a torn, he had torn clothes and dirt was on his head. I guess that's supposedly symbolizing to us that, that he was in pretty rough shape. And so he actually just ran past Eli as he goes into town. Eli is apparently sitting on a, this big seat near the gate. He's watching by the road. His, Eli has a lot of trepidation, you have to understand. He just let the ark of, of God go out of the temple. This is a really big deal. And he sent it out into battle against an army that just whipped his army. So surely he has a lot of trepidation. It says that he's watching by the road, but it later tells us that he's blind. So maybe he's just pretending to watch. But anyway, he's, he's worried. And so this man runs into town, tells the town of what just happened. And there's this outcry that's so loud that Eli heard it. And let's humanize this a little bit. Just imagine that happening in Murray, Kentucky. Or any other town that's small. Where 30,000 men die in battle. There is not a family there that would not have been directly affected by this. Husbands, fathers, sons, all obliterated by a pagan army and the Ark of God gone, and the two corrupt priests gone, just like that. The town is obviously upset, visibly upset, audibly upset. And so Eli, hearing this, demanded to get hear the news, and he got it. The text tells us, he's a 98-year-old blind man who's heavy. This is going to be a lot for him to take in. And notice this progression. Every single line of what this messenger has to say is worse than the last for Eli. Israel has fled. There has been a great defeat. Your sons have died. The ark of God is captured by pagans. Israel has fled. What does that mean? God did not fight with them. There has been a great defeat. What does that mean? Many families will be changed forever. And you know what else that means? Shiloh, as a city, now lies undefended. Your sons are dead. Losing your two children. Seeing them judged for their crimes. Seeing this prophecy come to light. The ark of God is gone. Your line is finished. This is the end. And what did he do? He dies. And we don't just hear that he died. We hear that he fell out of his chair backwards. 
which I think is a, a strong symbol for what actually happened to his whole family. He fell out of his chair backwards. He broke his neck because he was old and heavy, what the text tells us. Heavy probably from eating all that extra meat that his sons had been giving him. And it gets worse. We kind of go to another place where the wife of Phineas, Eli's daughter-in-law, is having a baby. Or was pregnant. Was about to give birth, but wasn't ready to give birth, apparently. But then goes into premature labor upon hearing the news. Dies during childbirth. Living just long enough to give her child a name that would probably he would probably always hate. Ichabod, or the glory has departed. Literally, in the Hebrew, where is the glory? There's an, again, there's an interesting play here in the Hebrew language that I think is worth noting this morning. Look there in verse 18. It tells us that he was old and heavy. Eli's heavy. Heavy in this sense, is a word for weight. But it's also a word that's used elsewhere in the text and elsewhere in Scripture for significance, often translated as the word glory. And this is the Hebrew word kabod. And I think it's an important way for us to understand what we mean by glory because I think a lot of times we use words as Christians like God gets the glory, and we really, if someone says, well, what is glory? I think we would have a lot of time uh, difficult explaining that. And so this is a really good way for us to think about what is glory. How much weight do you give to something? When we say that God gets the glory, that literally means that God gets all the significance. He gets all the weight. He bears the full magnitude of any situation that he's in. He gets all the credit. So then, stealing glory or taking glory away from God or not giving God all the glory, what does that mean? It is attempting to take some of the credit that he deserves and piling it on ourselves. Attempting to take anything that he deserves, which is what? All of it and giving it somehow to ourselves, or attempting to glory in anything else but him. Giving anything else the credit that is undeserving, and what is undeserving, everything else. And so trace this idea in the story now. The army with the ark, what were they giving the glory to? If we bring this ark among us, then we'll win. Hophni and Phinehas, what were they giving glory to? Their position as priests, their ability to just jerk people around, to take their things, even in the midst of worship. What was Eli glorying in? The spoils, the corruption of his sons that literally made him glorious. What for us? What do we place significance on where God deserves the credit. Our own merit? Think of your conversations. Think of your relationships. Think of the way 
that God deserves every ounce of credit when it comes to keeping our lives intact, keeping our lives going, keeping us breathing one breath after the next. He deserves credit credit when it comes to our marriages, our children being healthy, our jobs being successful, anything that goes on, he deserves the glory. He deserves the credit, all of the significance, all of the weight. And so when we would take us the tiniest slice away for ourselves, it is the same, the exact same thing as looking at the fruit in the garden and seeing it is right instead of God. It is the same sin of the people here in this text. So Eli's falling and breaking his neck because of his weight is literally God taking the glory away. God punishing him because of what he saw was glorious. What made him fat? All the meat that he had eaten because of, he was given to it by his corrupt sons. What killed him? His own glory. So look at the name of this grandson again. Ichabod. It has the word kabod right there in it. And it literally means, where is the glory? It's gone. The ark, Eli, all of it. It's gone. The weight of God, his significance across the land is gone. Another example. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 14. I think this is a very poignant example. How we can see this idea of us putting significance in things rather than God. Giving things credit rather than God. And seeing this word glory or weight used interchangeably. 2 Samuel 14 verses 25 through 28 get to meet an interesting character, Absalom. I could spend lots of time talking about him. He's David's son who, who stole the throne from David, if you'll remember. Starting at verse 25, Now in all, all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. I wonder if Absalom wrote this section. For the sole of his, or From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair... Off his head, from the end, from from at the or for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, two hundred shekels by the king's weight. There are born to Absalom three sons, and goes on through his family there. So what did he do? He gloried in his own body, his own appearance, his hair so much that he would literally weigh it every year. It was his own thing. And that word weight there again is the word kabod for, for glory. Well, let's go a few chapters up, and some of you guys know what's about to happen to old Absalom. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18. Turn there with me. The thing that Absalom gloried in, the thing that he gave significance to. Chapter 18, verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was 
that was under him went on. He was caught in this oak tree by his great head of hair. Well, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Joab, who, Joab's an interesting character as well. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And the ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Absalom loved himself more than just about anything, and his hair was a symbol of that love for himself, and it was his death. So let's consider our own lives. What are the things that we take glory from the Lord with? And we all have them. Again, anything that we apply significance to rather than giving God credit, this is what we do. Because he deserves all glory. But why do we do it? Because we somehow think that we can control him. Or even better yet, we somehow think that we can control our situation. If we can just entice him with a little bit of the glory that we stole from him, maybe he'll do our bidding. How does God teach us this lesson? How does God teach us the lesson of not taking glory, but giving it all to him? Just read through the scriptures. Read this chapter again. I wish I could say that simply hearing and reading that we shouldn't do those things is the right answer. That maybe we could all learn that way and just learn by hearing and reading, but we know full well from the rest of the ways that we live life that that's not how we learn. We learn by making mistakes. And I think there's a reason why people have to go through multiple difficult trials in life to get a better understanding of what glory is. Talk to someone who's been through a lot of stuff in their life. They'll tell you what glory is. Because they understand firsthand that God gets all the glory. I think many times because of our stubbornness and our ignorance, we we have to be stripped away to nothing before that we before we see God must be glorified above all things and shall be glorified. Need examples from Scripture? Start at Genesis one. Noah and his family, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, even Pharaoh for that matter, David, Peter, Paul—all men who were stripped to nothing to understand that. God gets the glory. And I would go on to even say that this is part of our sanctification. You know, we want to tie it back to the fact that he loves his children, even in the midst of this. How can we say that when he's destroying people and he's killing his priests and he's taking the ark away from him? This is part of him growing us up as believers. This is part of him growing us up as his people. I think it's when we see the glory depart from our own lives, as it were, that we see more and more that God deserves the glory. and He deserves all the glory that there is. And so where's the hope? Well, you know who we get to talk about when we talk about where's the hope. So how do we, as Christians then, see this rightly? Well, turn with me to Psalm 24. We just read this morning. We're going to look at it again. 
And I want you to hear this psalm now in the context of what we've just talked about. Of the glory departing Israel because of all that they did. Of our own glory even, the glory that we've stolen from God departing us. When we learn more and more that it's him that deserves that. Look at this psalm from David who had to learn that lesson as well. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He's learning. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from God, from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who is he talking about that's living, that has clean hands and a pure heart, whose soul deserves to ascend the, the hill of the Lord? Nobody. Well, who do we need? Verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Do you want to see the glory come back? Who brings it back? Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Who is this King of glory? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who brings the glory back. How does he do that? He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? It's our Lord Jesus and he receives the blessing. He is the righteousness of God, the God of salvation. And then what do we receive from him? The righteousness of God, the God of salvation. Think about the Ark of the Covenant, brothers and sisters. Where is it now? Who knows? It's gone from history. The nation of Israel, what are they doing now? They no longer look to God. They definitely reject Jesus what about Shiloh? Where is it? It's burned to the ground shortly after this story. It's a memory. It's never mentioned again. But look, who is the king of glory that is entering the gates? Who is bringing glory back to sinful man, to a creation scarred by sin? The king of glory, strong and mighty in battle. It's for him that the ancient doors will open. Through him that we will have the glory of God, the righteousness of God. And so in conclusion, quickly, what shall we do? Let us consider, brothers and sisters, strongly meditate on these things this week. Understand these things from your own lives. Consider those times when we rob God of his glory. And instead, we should look to Jesus. He is the one who's restoring us. He is the one that's restoring all creation, who's giving life and goodness, who's giving us, his people, 
the very glory of God. And this is a process that's difficult for us. I think particularly difficult for the Christian who knows the hope that we have. But in the end, brothers and sisters, this is what's good for our sanctification. So let us embrace it as his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the King of glory. We are sorry for those times when we rob you of your glory. When we would just take the smallest bit of it in order to see ourselves lifted up. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of this sin. Help us. Instruct us in the way. And Lord, use those whatever means you deem necessary to do so. We know that this world is a sad and awful place. But Lord, help us to see the glory that you bring, the glory that has come back, the salvation that you give to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.